0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday, time to go into the vault. And boy, do we have a treat for you. This is a grand old episode. Robert, I know you're very excited about this one. Uh, when Did this originally air in 2014? Yes, this
1: is, a, this is a much older episode than a lot of the other vault episodes we've discussed. Uh, it published uh, August 26th and 28th, 2014. It's a pair of episodes that uh, Julie Douglas and I uh, put together that discuss the history of syphilis, how the science of syphilis, how syphilis works. Yes, the the sexually transmitted disease syphilis. And it is just a fascinating topic. It's it's easily one of my, my favorite episodes of all time. Uh, so we, we've we taken those two episodes and stitched them together into one episode. Uh, so it might be a little clunky at times, but uh, all the information is, uh, is definitely still valid. Will there be vampires? Oh, there will be vampires. Uh, be prepared for the syphilitic uh, vampire. All right. Well, let's go right in.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
3: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: And I'd like you to take a moment to just try and create, try and imagine the most destructive disease possible. Imagine a disease that ravages the body, that ravages just about every tissue, every every part of the human form, that uh, that takes down the sex organs, that uh, takes apart the face, takes apart your identity, and in some cases ultimately robs you of your mind as well before killing you outright.
3: Yeah, you mentioned sex organs. So also imagine that there's a moral dimension to this disease that would give you the sort of... Outward appearance that perhaps you had been engaging in conduct unbecoming to you.
1: Yes. And uh, of course, in all of this, we are talking about a very real illness and that is syphilis. We're actually going to devote two whole episodes to syphilis here. This first episode, syphilis, the great imitator, is mainly going to focus on the uh, organism that causes syphilis and how syphilis manifests itself in the human body. In the second episode, we are going to get into the cultural and historical impact of syphilis because that, that in its own right is an enormous topic of interest because for four and a half centuries, syphilis ravages the old world ravages western culture and it's it's really kind of difficult to overstate the the role that syphilis played in in coloring uh, Western civilization during that time.
3: Yes, don't run away because this is all really interesting. The, the bacterium itself is fascinating and then of course the, the cultural implications. Now we had our first recorded uh, epidemic of venereal syphilis occurring in Europe in 1495 and by the close of the 15th century you have chaos just reigning in Naples, Italy where there was a huge outbreak. In fact uh, Pope Innocent Eighth. Asked French King Charles the Eighth to invade the city with troops to try to keep it under control, but what do you think happens?
1: Well, uh, as we would, as we would eventually learn, sending troops in to deal with syphilis not the best strategy because because they're going to end up catching the syphilis, and then when you draw the troops out, they're going to take the syphilis elsewhere.
3: Exactly. And the problem here is that syphilis has been known as the great imitator because it has all these different symptoms that at the outset might be mistaken for other illnesses. So imagine this time period in which this was happening and people not quite knowing what they were dealing with.
1: Yeah, to quote uh, Sir William Osler, he says, No syphilis in all its manifestations and relations and all other things clinical will be added to you. There is no organ in the body nor any tissue in the organs which syphilis does not invade, and it is therefore manifestly difficult to speak, at least at all concisely, of the pathology of the disease, just as, as it is almost impossible to describe its clinical symptoms without mentioning almost every symptom of every known disease. And these symptoms... Are not going to be the same from one person to the next. Mm-hmm. So you have a disease that is that is seemingly very stealthy, very nefarious. It's uh, it's it's changing its shape, it's changing its strategy, it's going dormant, it's popping back up, and uh, and the whole time everyone's trying to understand what's going on, how to prevent it. Uh, Again, there's, this, there's this, this whole seemingly moral side to it because it's spread through sexual contact and it ends up spreading across every social uh, level in society. Uh, it's, it's a disease that ravages the poor. It ravages the rich. It's hitting the royalty. It's hitting the clergy. It's hitting anyone who's engaging in sexual contact.
3: Which is everyone, right? Yeah. And in fact, it is so prevalent that uh, you get a couple of references to it in Shakespeare's works, like pox of your houses and Romeo and Juliet, which is now a curse, like a pox on you. The pox, Um, yeah. But the problem with this is that we tend to think of it as this antiquated illness, right? It is not, in fact, the Centers for Disease Control estimate that annually – More than 55,000 people in the U.S. get new syphilis infections, and during 2012, there were more than 49,000 reported new cases of syphilis compared to 48,000 estimated new diagnoses of HIV. So it is still present, and it is most common in people between the ages of 20 and 29 years of age, which has led it to be called Cupid's disease, by the way.
1: Yeah, and of course, one other way we should mention that it, uh, you can uh, transfer syphilis is through an unborn child, and so congenital syphilis, which we'll uh, we'll talk about a little bit more later, that's also a huge problem because uh, when uh, syphilis uh, manifests in a newborn child, uh, the the uh, the effects are are can can be pretty disastrous. So once again, syphilis, even though it is of tremendous interest from a historical standpoint, it is not a purely historical disease.
3: No, we just don't uh, put as much much emphasis on it these days in terms of infectious diseases because it can be controlled by penicillin, and we'll talk about that later. Yes,
1: yes. It can be wiped out by penicillin, and uh, uh, and, and that has been a, a huge advantage in the war against syphilis for sure. But still, it is, uh, it is an adversary that, uh, that carries on, even in the advent of uh, what would seem a magic bullet.
3: Yeah, and let's talk about this dastardly organism, also known as Treponema pallidum.
1: Yes. Uh, treponema pallidum, which is a treponemal disease. There are other treponemal diseases, which we'll uh, get into. Uh, these incu- include uh, bejel, uh, penta, and yaws. None of these, of course, are sexually transmitted, but they are uh, essentially skin ailments that are, uh, that are transferred by skin-to-skin contact.
3: Yes, yeah, so they are related to trepanema pallidum, but they themselves, as you say, are not spread through sexual contact. Um, and, uh,
1: and I should add, to, to be clear, uh, if you want to get really particular, syphilis is caused by um, a subspecies of trepanema pallidum, essentially trepanema pallidum pallidum. But for all intents and, and references uh, going forward, trepanema pallidum, T-pallidum syphilis, uh, you'll know what we're talking about.
3: Yeah. Now, this is a spiral-shaped bacterium, also known as a spirochete. And uh, we're talking about slender, spirally, undulating bacteria here. And again, it is uh, most often spread by sexual contact. And the disease occurs in three primary stages. We'll talk more about that. And uh, now these, these later stages that we'll discuss are not so common in our modern era.
1: Right. Yeah. Because, uh, the later stages obviously deal with a case of syphilis that has not been treated, not been cured uh, with the uh, penicillin. All right. Well, let's, let's, uh, talk about how syphilis is transmitted. And I'd like you to think about this, uh, in terms of an invasion, because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. We're, we're dealing with an invasion of these spirochetes into the human body. And this invasion uh, takes place in a few different phases. So syphilis can be spread, again, by, uh, through, through the birth placenta, by kissing, close contact, um, transfusion of fresh human blood. But the main ways that it's, uh, that it's spreading is through sexual contact. We're talking um, vaginal sex, oral sex, anal sex. Um, all of these will serve as as, a, as an entry point. Now, the, the way that the spirochetes enter the body, they, they enter through the skin. And when intimate contact of this nature is made, that is when, when the spirochete enters the body, enters through the skin.
3: And there it will hang out until it makes itself known in the form of a syphilitic sore, also known as a chancre. And shankers occur mainly on external genitals, the vagina, anus, or in the rectum. They can also occur on the lips and in the mouth. So this is when you see most of the transmission occur among people when these sores are present.
1: Right. This is primary syphilis. This is first stage syphilis. And think of this in terms of the enemy initially getting in to the fortress. This is the – the chancre is literally the entry point for the, uh, for the spirochetes. And it may be a small number of spirochetes, it may be a larger number of spirochetes, but this is where they're getting in. This is the hole in the fortress wall.
3: Yeah, and these shankers can appear usually around 21 days after infection, but sometimes as little as 10 or even 90 days.
1: Yeah, and they may hang around for three to six weeks. And here's the thing, they can. if you look up pictures uh, online, and, and sure, you should definitely go and do a Google image search for for what these look like. Gird your loins. Um, gird your loins. Uh, but they may look uh, pretty intense at times, but these are painless, uh, and they're easily confused with any number of small skin ailments that may uh, pop up in even a healthy person's life. You know, stuff like uh, ingrown hairs or, uh, or, you know, or, or various other bumps that may be caused by, by you know, any number of other uh, ailments. Again, it's a great uh, imitator.
3: Right. Now, if you do not get treated at this point, well, then it gets into secondary syphilis. And during this stage, that's when you see those skin rashes, sores in your mouth.
1: And so that's the primary stage. And and it's key to note here that the chancre... Disappears. It vanishes. So if you were concerned about it, if you were like, I wonder what this painless, uh, you know, ugly spot on my genitals is, well, then it goes away. And that's one of the dangers that we see uh, uh, over and over again with syphilis is that the, the infection seems to go away. The illness may seem to go away, but uh, as we're about to learn – it does not.
3: And again, imagine yourself in you know the fifteenth century. If you have this, and then that disappears, you think, "Oh, everything is fine." Yeah. Right. Ooh, so, I
1: got I was upset over over nothing. Ingrown hair, you know, maybe you didn't even notice. It's it's entirely likely that one wouldn't even notice that uh, the shanker had popped up.
3: Now, most likely, you wouldn't have been treated at that point in time because there wasn't anything necessarily to treat you with that was really effective. So it would then develop into a secondary stage called secondary syphilis, in which you would have skin rashes and or sores in your mouth, vagina, and anus, also called mucous membrane lesions.
1: Yeah, and you may also see other varying symptoms such as fever, uh, lethargy, headaches, uh, general body aches, uh, hair loss. And this is the point in the invasion in which the the enemy made it in in the primary stage. And in secondary syphilis, the enemy has spread throughout the castle. All right, and, and is making itself known throughout uh, the invaded city that is the human body.
3: Right, and you are highly contagious at this point. In fact, genital sores caused by syphilis make it a lot easier to transmit and acquire things like HIV infection, right? So you can get yes. a secondary infection at this point. In fact, there is an estimated two to five-fold increased risk of acquiring HIV if you're exposed to infection uh, when syphilis is present in these first and second stages.
1: Now, at this point, after secondary syphilis and here again we see that the secondary syphilis this outbreak uh, period this goes away as well which again could lead someone to say well that was horrible and maybe they may not even realize that it was connected to the primary uh, outbreak and they they might but they can easily imagine well i'm done with this now it's 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 done it's finished whatever illness was affecting me the pox has left me right
3: yeah but little do they know that this is just the latent uh stage of this and it's just waiting around. It might not even reveal itself for decades.
1: Yeah. So imagine the enemy has invaded the the castle. They've made a lot of mischief, and then suddenly they seem to be gone. But they're not gone.
3: They're in the basement. They,
1: they're in the basement. They're in they're in every house in the city. They're they've literally become a part of the city. They're essentially a sleeper cell, uh, and that is what uh, latent syphilis is.
3: Tertiary syphilis, the stage really is quite gruesome because it kind of takes everything in the body down to the studs or more so i should say it's like you say the sleeper cells in the basement they become stronger and they come roaring back into the body and they cause a lot of havoc
1: yeah it's i mean we see this over and over again with with syphilis but it has such metaphorical power is one of the reasons that I i think we're aside from its uh its power to harm and disfigure us uh the reason we're drawn to it so is you do see this idea of of the, the infection, it flared up then it flared up again and then it comes back in only 15 to 30 percent of the cases, uh, a much stronger form in the tertiary mm-hmm. stage, uh, far more debilitating, far more destructive and ultimately lethal stage of the illness.
3: Yeah, in this late stage, uh, you could have symptoms that include difficulty coordinating your muscle movements, paralysis, not being able to move some of your body, uh, numbness, blindness, and dementia. And then in the late, late stages, the disease begins to ravage your internal organs, and that is what can result in death.
1: And this one of the remarkable things about this is that this stage can occur 10 to 20 years after primary syphilis. hmm so this is it 's again the metaphorical power of this it 's like the the sins of the young individual coming back to destroy the older individual you know it 's it's um, it 's it's gruesome stuff. <laughs> And 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 again, so one may not even remember that first outbreak all that clearly, and yeah. then suddenly all these changes are happening to their body and ultimately to their mind.
3: Yeah, and we have largely up until this point uh, treated this in a very clinical fashion, and, and not really talked about the sights and the sounds and the smells of what this looks like, mm-hmm. which we'll do more in the next podcast. But just know that at this point, um, this 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 is really adding. Injury to insult because you might have lost your nose, you know, and recovered from that. And and all of a sudden you think you're out in the clear and boom, it comes back in, in such a corrosive manner that you find out that this is really the death knell.
1: Yeah, corrosive is an excellent term to use because you see the... Um you see uh, loss of teeth. You see the destruction of the palate in the mouth. You see um, you see the, the the collapse of the nose into uh, what is known as saddle nose, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, basically the nose uh, you know, collapses around the bridge and becomes kind of upturned and smaller looking, uh, and then may eventually um, appear to rot entirely. Uh, saddle nose is also caused uh, can also be caused by just damage to the nose. You'll yeah. see boxers that suffer from saddle nose also. Uh, 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 Extreme cocaine addiction uh, can somehow sometimes have that effect on individuals. But yeah, you're seeing it attack your facial features. You're seeing it attack uh, uh, your genitals uh, in a very uh, destructive manner. And then also getting into your organs. You're, you know, again, to back to the quote that I read at the beginning of the podcast by uh, uh, Dr. William Osler, it, it, the, the spirochetes of uh, syphilis attack every part of the body, like nothing is off limits. To go back to that castle analogy from from earlier, the, uh, the invader has lived in the city for 10 to 20 years, and now... In potentially every household in the city has decided to just burn everything to the ground.
3: Right. Now, the other part of this is that uh, syphilis, as we have mentioned before, can be transmitted through the placenta. So what does this mean? It means that during that time period from the 15th century to the 20th century, there are a lot of children born with syphilis, also called congenital syphilis.
1: And even to this day, uh, according to the World Health Organization, you have a million children born uh, annually with congenital syphilis.
3: Yeah, and it's very serious stuff because nearly half of all children infected with syphilis while they're in the womb die shortly before or after birth. And sometimes this can also result in stillborns. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite the fact that syphilis can be cured with antibiotics if caught early, there are rising rates among pregnant women in the United States and that, of course, has increased the number of infants born with this. Now, some of the complications include blindness, deafness, deformity of the face, and nervous system problems.
1: Now, why does syphilis hang out in the body so long, you might be wondering? Well, uh, it's a, it may be due in part to uh, T. palatum having a slow dividing time of 30 to 33 hours. And it's likely that T. palatum undergoes an even slower rate of division during the latent stages of the disease. So... It's, uh, it's, it's a long-living uh, creature uh, f- from a bacterial standpoint.
3: Yeah, so it's like a bacterial crockpot. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, let's talk about the current state of treatment in infections. Oh, but I say current. I have to mention that there are a couple old-timey ways in which there are thought to be cures for it, uh, one of which is mercury.
1: Yes, Yes,
3: inhaling mercury vapor. In fact, this was so common for hundreds of years that a, a little phrase came out of that, a night with Venus, a lifetime with mercury. Yeah,
1: so you would find yourself uh, going regularly for essentially skin treatments, taking these these mercury steam baths mm-hmm. and and enduring the harmful effects of that of that mercury inhalation on top of the ravages of syphilis.
3: It did kill the spirochete, but yes, it also poisoned the patient.
1: Yeah. Well, in, there are a few different yeah, you know, factors involved there because on one hand, uh there you know there are arguments to what effect the mercury had in killing the spirochetes but then the spirochetes are so entrenched in the body yeah. what can you do also uh, again think about that that primary and secondary stage the flare ups and the disappearance you have individuals that could go into to be treated for for their symptoms of syphilis and lo and behold the symptoms vanish With the treatment, not because of the treatment, but just because of the timing of the treatment. And ultimately, again, you're dealing with four and a half centuries in which there is no cure for this illness. So if someone's trying to sell you an illness, you're going to try and buy it. That's just how it goes. And, you know, if this disease is ravaging my body, if you tell me that mercury might help, then I'm probably going to try mercury.
3: Sure, you're going to try anything at that point, including malaria, which was apparently something that was discovered in 1917 by Julius Wagner Jorig to help halt some of the symptoms of syphilis, particularly neurosyphilis, that advanced stage in which you get psychosis and you get paralysis. And they found that if you in, induced a malarial fever in patients, well, that could help with the actual infection.
1: You also saw the use of uh, so-called syphilization uh, treatments. This was where you would essentially try to uh, you know, inoculate the, the, the patient in the same way that you would uh, treat them for smallpox. Mm-hmm. Um, this didn't work. Uh, so but, this
3: is submitting yourself to the disease, right?
1: Right. Yeah. Trying to to build up uh, you know bodily immunity um, doesn't work. I, now I've I've read some mixed reports of how uh, experiments on rabbits uh, in the uh, the modern age have potentially shown some possibility there. But you get into a situation where it would take so many uh, applications of syphilis, and and we're talking about a rabbit, and it hasn't been studied enough, and you would yeah. certainly could not study it in humans. So, uh, so, yeah. And then also, why study it when we have penicillin that can wipe it out?
3: And sometimes it's diagnosed by testing fluid from a syphilis sore and looking for the spirochete via dark field microscopy.
1: The name of that blood test, by the way, is the Wasserman blood test, uh, and it was developed in 1906, just to get everything in the timeline squared away there.
3: So as we had mentioned, syphilis can be treated with antibiotics. So we're talking about penicillin. We're talking about g benzotine, doxycycline, or tetracycline. And that's for patients who are usually allergic to penicillin. And the length of treatment depends on the extent of the infection and factors such as the person's overall health. So let's say you didn't get uh, to it right away and you kind of get to the second or, or have uh, a secondary phase of it, you would still have to deal with any sort of ill effects that you might have sustained at that point.
1: All right, so at this point, you might be wondering what can I do to? Decrease my chances of of catching syphilis. Well, according to the CDC, there are basically two things you can do because there's no there's no vaccine for syphilis. We have a cure for syphilis, but then again, you get into the problem of detecting it, uh, knowing to report it, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even once you've treated syphilis, there's no undoing any damage that it's done. Um, so, number one, be a part of a long term mutually monogamous relationship with a partner who has been tested and has negative STd test results and Number two, use latex condoms the right way every time you have sex condoms prevent transmission of syphilis by preventing contact with a sore. Sometimes sores occur in areas not covered by a condom, however, and contact with these sores can still transmit syphilis because again it's about uh it, it, it's a, it's a, it come, goes through the skin it 's not something that that travels uh through. Uh, the the orifice.
3: Now, this might surprise you, but the people who really need to hear this most, besides twenty to twenty nine year olds, mm-hmm. are senior citizens. Okay. Yes,
1: and this surprised me. This was some, some, some interesting uh, material that you discovered.
3: Yeah, we actually, uh, a while ago, we had someone from the CDC come and talk to us about STDs, not because our our group needed a talking uh, to, but— Because <laughs> of the
1: syphilis outbreak at work.
3: <laughs> right. Yeah. No, but because every once in a while, someone will come and, and sort of give us information and—, and um, it's always very interesting. And he had mentioned then that retirement communities, assisted living facilities, uh, these are all hotbeds for STDs, and this is in part because they are not practicing safe sex. And also, you have to keep in mind that um, that for a long time, perhaps many of, of the uh, community members were in long-term relationships, but now they probably have lost a partner And it's a very social community. Uh, There's a lot of sex going on with senior citizens in these communities. And numbers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show a rapid increase among older people. We're talking about between 2007 and 2011, chlamydia infections among Americans 65 and over increased by 31 percent and syphilis by 52 percent.
1: Wow. Wow. See, I just had I had no idea. I I end up struggling to try and piece together like a timeline for a hypothetical uh, assisted living resident of how they acquire the syphilis, and then how and then how they end up passing it on to uh, multiple people in the facility.
3: They just need to get the old posters, you know, from the nineteen forties <laughs> and put them back up. And we'll talk more about that in the next episode. Oh, but yes. there were definite campaigns, uh, you know, trying to. get. Get some sort of awareness going with Americans about STDs.
1: Indeed, yes, we'll get into all of that in our next episode
0: uh, titled "Syphilis Through the Ages."
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
3: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: This is part two of our little series here on syphilis. The first episode, Syphilis, the Great Imitator, dealt with the uh, the organism that causes syphilis, uh, which is uh, known as Treponema pallidum. Uh, actually, it's a subspecies of Treponema pallidum. Uh, and this is uh, all caused by this tiny, tightly coiled spirochete, this little bacterium that ends up causing all of this trouble for those that are infected. So if you have not listened, to that first episode go back have a listen we will walk you through all the stages of a syphilis infection from that uh, that from the tiny annoyances of the primary infection on up to the disastrously deforming and ultimately lethal stages of tertiary syphilis
3: as well as the treatment of it finally yes. Um, All right. This has uh, been mentioned in the other episode, but it bears mentioning again the first recorded epidemic of venereal syphilis occurred in Europe in 1495 by the close of the 15th century. It was uh, pretty rampant. In fact, in Naples, Italy, there was such a huge outbreak that the pope uh, said, hey, we need some help here. Soldiers were brought in. 25,000 of them. And what do you think happened? Well, they, they got to the, the prostitutes and they got more syphilis. And then, of course, it just got worse and worse. So what we're talking about is is a disease that ravished for centuries throughout Europe. And today we're going to try to get at the the origins of it. And they we're going to try to tease out some of the morality that has been paired with it, as well as the sort of the xenophobia that, that surrounds it as well.
1: Yeah, as, as I mentioned before, it's 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 kind of difficult to overstate the importance of syphilis in uh, Western culture uh, for those four and a half plus centuries um, that it uh, that, that it was a problem. Um, and, and as we discussed in the last episode, syphilis is not eradicated. Uh, it is still around today. It's still mm-hmm. something to, uh, to be concerned about. And it's still something we have to, to treat both we- with, uh, with penicillin and with uh, education.
3: But during the 14th century to the early 20th century, it was really permeating the fabric of culture. It was rampant.
1: Yes, uh, when we break down the percentages of it, it's going to vary depending on where in Europe you are looking. But you are generally looking at a ten to fifteen percent of the population has syphilis, uh, you know, with some degree, uh, you know, margin for error there. And then uh, upwards of twenty percent in military, uh, because again, you have younger men who are potentially traveling around, and uh, they are the ones that are spreading it from place to place, visiting prostitutes, etc.
3: Yeah, and because of its association with Columbus, who sailed under the Spanish flag, it was uh, called the Spanish disease for a while. And then the French called it the Neapolitan or Italian disease because they caught it from residents of Naples, or so they say. Naples, of course, was one of the major outbreak areas the russians called it a polish disease the polish called it a russian disease and the turks called it a christian disease (laughs) while the english called it the french pox so what do you see here a lot of finger pointing
1: yes it's always the other uh, that you blame the disease on you have to draw that firm line in your worldview between we the clean and they the diseased and hope that that line doesn't come to envelop you as well um the the columbus thing is so fascinating and it's and it's a, a it's a point that is uh, continually studied and argued about but again you, we see that first big outbreak in 1495 mm-hmm. and as we all know uh, in 1492 columbus the sailed the ocean blue yeah. yeah so it sounds it sounds almost too good to be true slash too horrible to be true it almost sounds too easy mm-hmm. but but we keep coming back to it time and time again. Here we have Columbus sailing to this drastically new land. And their contact, be it sexual or merely skin on skin, is occurring between uh, members of his uh, his crew and the native population. And then they return to Europe. And then in their wake, we see the emergence of this this. This powerful illness.
3: Yeah, and you see a lot of wrong-headed ideas about this, this idea of uh, xenophobia, right? This fear of strangers, this idea that there are savages that have uh, spread this disease to Europeans via Columbus.
1: Yeah, you laid with a member of another nation. You laid with a member of another another race. All of these these weird taboos spring up and uh, seemingly uh, in concert with the parameters of the illness. As we mentioned before, one of the reasons that syphilis is such a captivating topic is because it's so rife for metaphor, you know, be it a metaphor of, of morality, a, a, mora- a, a, a metaphor of racism, nationalism, sexism, whatever you want to throw at it, it seems to conform to that that form rather nicely.
3: Yeah. Now, we will get back to Columbus and we're going to try to get to the origins of of syphilis. But before we do, it's just worth it to say that this is uh, syphilis and trying to get to the origins of it is really difficult. Um, It's very hard to study. Mm -hmm. There are many strains, some of which don't exist anymore. And then you have anecdotal claims throughout the centuries. So you can't really pair that with, you know, a systematic approach to say, yes, indeed, this was a case of syphilis. Because again, as we have mentioned before, syphilis is the great imitator. So it's very possible that someone had leprosy and not syphilis.
1: Exactly. And and again, on that difficult-to-study note, you, you can't grow syphilis in a culture. You can't have a little petri dish of syphilis, even today. We have to study it in rabbits.
3: Mm-hmm. So, right, you have to have it in an actual organism – to really get a good idea about it. That being said, uh, there have been these pre-Columbian theories kicked around. In other words, this idea of hey, could syphilis have existed before the New World, previous to the late 1400s in the Old World? That's again called the pre-Columbian theory.
1: Yeah, and this uh, this theory is is basically that to say that well, when we have. Other illnesses, if you look back at some accounts of leprosy, you might say, well, that that account of leprosy doesn't match up as well with our modern understanding of leprosy. Perhaps that was a different ailment. Perhaps that was, in fact, syphilis. And instead, we're just kind of latching on to this uh, easy explanation of Columbus since this uh, groundbreaking um, expedition takes place just a few years before this major outbreak. But of course, uh, the world, because, I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, the world is more complicated than one ship sailing off and coming back. There are other movements going on in the world. It's a time of of great change. Mm -hmm. People are moving around, not only throughout Europe, but you have movements uh, uh, going into uh, into, Asia. Asia and Africa. So what? So why not? Why? Why could there not be another route for this illness to take?
3: And we'll discuss it. We'll really try to get to the bottom of this. Uh, but so when we call, when we say pre-Columbian, we're talking about Old World. When we talk about Colombian, we're talking about New World. Generally here,
1: yeah. Um, old World is Europe. Old World is uh, is Western civilization. New World, the Americas, Colombia et cetera.
3: Right. And if you're going to talk about uh, New World, you have to talk about something called yaw and facial. Now, these are tropical diseases that are closely related to treponema pallidum, which is, of course, syphilis. Uh, Although they are different, Uh, Bajel causes mouth sores and lumps in the bone and yaws cause skin sores and disfiguring growths on the leg. So, of course, they're they're related to syphilis, but they are non-venereal.
1: Right. They're spread through skin-to-skin contact. They're not not straight-up venereal diseases. Um, You know, granted, you could catch them in skin-to-skin contact during sexual intercourse, but... They're not depending on that as their mode of transmission. The, yeah, but these are all trympanemal diseases. They are, these are all close relatives of uh, the subspecies of trympanema pallidum that causes syphilis.
3: And we bring them up because they're important to study. If you're, if you're trying to look at where syphilis, syphilis originated from, then you're going to want to look at yaws and basal because paleopathologists – Bruce and Christine Rothschild used that information to point toward a new world origin of syphilis. And they examined 687 skeletons from archaeological sites in the U.S. And We're talking about uh, ranging in age from 400 to 6,000 years. And what they found is that populations to the south looked to have syphilis, while those to the north had yaws. And then by contrast they examined 1,000 old world skeletons dating to before contact with the New World, and they found zero cases of syphilis. So this kind of gets you onto the route of, well, maybe the New World did have the case of syphilis, although it's not that clear cut as we'll discuss.
1: And this leads us to uh, what is called the Unitarian Hypothesis. Which has nothing to do with Unitarians in the, <laughs> the, uh, the religious sense of the word. We're, don't worry, Unitarians. We're not, we're not nailing this one on you. Unitarian in the sense of that, that it unites the uh, old world and new world hypotheses regarding the emergence of syphilis in Europe. The basic idea here is that you do have Columbus and his sailors setting sail from Europe to the n- new world, to the Americas. Mm-hmm. And when they're there, they do come into skin-to-skin contact sexual and non-sexual, with natives there. And then they end up acquiring trympanemal diseases. Now, you know, again, think to Bejeweled, think to, to Penta, think to Yaws, but not necessarily syphilis proper. But they bring back a relative of syphilis and they bring it back to a drastically new incubation world. We're talking about a, a different environment because in the in the Americas, uh, you know, individuals with syphilis, they're going to largely be in you know, smaller communities. But then you bring them to a European port town. You bring it to a world where individuals are wearing more clothes, thus uh, allowing for less skin-on-skin contact. You're bringing it to a world where you have brothels, a world where you have tiny ships tightly packed with men sailing from one port to the next port throughout Europe. And what happens, according to this uh, hypothesis, is that the, uh, uh, the treponemal disease changes and and we get this subspecies of Trempanema pallidum that causes syphilis as we know it. So it is a story of mutation under new environmental circumstances.
3: Yeah, if anyone is interested in uh, taking a deeper dive into this and, and some of the skeletal evidence behind this, there is a paper, a 2012 paper called The Science Behind Pre-Columbian Evidence of Syphilis in Europe, Research by Documentary. And that goes into this uh, much more. And I wanted to quote Molly Zuckerman, she's one of the authors of the paper. She says, in reality, it appears that venereal syphilis was the byproduct of two different populations meeting and exchanging a pathogen. It was an adaptive event, the natural selection of a disease independent of morality or blame.
1: Yeah, it's not a situ- situation of, oh, those sinful sailors or, oh, those diseased uh, natives in this new world. It's, it's something... More complicated than that,
3: yeah, and you know at the outset of this, the researchers for this paper they really wanted to to sort of disprove this idea that Columbus and his crew were vectors, yeah, for syphilis, because they thought it can't be that just you know Columbus and his his guys hung out in America and then brought it back to Europe and spread syphilis all over the place. can't be that simple, uh, and it's not that <laughs> simple. Um, you know, cause the trick here is that it mutated, it adapted rather. Um, but they really, they went into it with the intent of saying, nah, can't be.
1: Yeah. Because it does sound like something you would read in sort of a conspiracy, uh, theory kind of message board, right? Like, well, these two dates line up, we can correlate this a little bit. Therefore, that must be what happened. Um, now, you know, we do want to drive home that these are all hypotheses and that this is still yes. an area that everyone's – there are a lot of papers that come out about this. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of argument, lots a of, lot of disagreement. So there's no definitive answer here. And it may indeed be one of those areas where we never have a definitive answer.
3: It's true. And, uh, you know, the, the uh, researchers who worked on that paper also worked on – some of them worked on a different paper looking at 54 published reports – of pre-Columbian evidence and skeletal remains of syphilis. And they found there that, again, there wasn't enough supporting information and real evidence to say that it existed in its form of syphilis, as we know it and, and talk about it now, in the old world. So again there seems to be some sort of direction here in terms of the way this the river is streaming with information, but it doesn't mean that this is the end point of the origins of syphilis. And we're going to talk about more of the sort of sights and sounds and smells of what it might be like in a syphilitic era in Europe and uh, I wanted to just read this. This is from the BBC, A Cultural History of Syphilis. It says, in the 1490s, an apparently new and terrifying disease struck Naples in southern Italy and swept fire like across Europe, reaping a dreadful human cost. It must have been as though hell had come to earth. Pustules spread across the genitals in the face of its many sufferers. Unbearable gastrointestinal pain followed upon fevers, screamingly severe headaches, and other symptoms. Finally, flesh fell from bones. Syphilis had arrived in Europe where it would stay, misunderstood, lacking any form of cure for nearly 500 years.
1: Yeah, that's, that's pretty rough sounding. Um, and again, re- remember that this was not a disease that affected just the poor. Uh, this was a disease that affected rich and poor alike, that affected uh, royalty and peasant, that affected clergy members, anyone that was engaging in sexual contact uh, Uh, ran the risk, a high risk of of acquiring uh, this this illness.
3: And yeah, this was not a quiet sort of illness. I mean, people could smell you before you even came around. We're talking about rotting flesh. We are talking about your face bearing the marks of syphilis, your body bearing the marks of it. In fact, you could even kind of see it as a sort of uh, scarlet letter A, Uh, rot into your flesh.
1: Yeah. Again, the the metaphorical power of syphilis is, is unavoidable here because you already have the idea uh, in Western culture that that physical deformities may signal inner deformities that uh, that that uh, that an inner sin can have a fleshly uh, manifestation, and it's super easy to apply that line of thinking to syphilis because here is something that is spread through sex. Here is something that is spread through. Uh, through sin, if you will and and then has these these terrifying physical um, manifestations, uh, certainly in its later stages so it's it 's easy then for someone to point the figure and say this this is the way these are the wages of sin right here. all you have to do is look at this individual, look at the uh, look at the the sores on their body, look at the deformities of their facial feature, look what has happened to them uh, and and so you see this just throughout itself. Throughout its four and a half centuries of, uh, of unchecked rampaging and even beyond into the 20th century and even into the 21st, there is a moral aspect to syphilis and to other venereal diseases. This is something you caught because you were doing something that was wrong. Like that's the script that is often uh, applied to the scenario.
3: Yeah, and now people have the sort of calling card hallmarks of that disease, right? right. They look at you and they say, oh – let me see. You've you've got a nasty rash there. You've lost your hair. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps your nose is even caving in into what's called saddle nose. And so what do people do? Well, they try to find anything and everything that might cover up their transgressions or what would be perceived as transgressions.
1: Right. And bear in mind again through all of this that there are no set of standard symptoms for syphilis. And there okay. are stages where it's undetectable. So, so every everyone's going crazy with ways to detect and treat it while the the illness itself is uh, is is so difficult to get your hands on it's the great Im- imitator it's the it's the the great hider um so yeah bad stuff is happening to your body in, in uh, the varying stages of syphilis. Uh, so one thing you might do is, to, of course, you may cover things up. You Since we are wearing clothes, we're wearing makeup, you can apply clothing and makeup to cover up your sores.
3: Yeah. In fact, uh, syphilis just creates this whole cottage industry of, of different things you can buy and do to either feel better or look better. Mm-hmm. So there might be some sort of snake oil that you can buy, right, that has absolutely no medical merit. Or you might visit your local wig maker quite a a bit because again, you want to cover up the bald patch on your head or the baldness so that people don't suspect that you have syphilis. And if you are a prostitute, a Merkin is a must.
1: Because, yeah, you might be shaving your pubic hair anyway to cut down on lice, but then you also might have uh, an outbreak of syphilis down there. You want to disguise the sign, so you get a wig for your genitals.
3: Also called a Merkin, which yes. is not a Muppet character.
1: Yeah, they're apparently used a lot now uh, in for films, especially historical films.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: But historically, it was more a matter of venereal diseases. Uh, for the men, it generally wasn't really an option because uh, the uh, – well, there's just more to cover up down there. And uh, it, just do a Google image search. You'll see what I'm talking about.
3: <laughs> All right. Yeah, there are some logistics there that you can't quite uh, cover with a Merkin. But uh, what happens when – your nose caves in and your flesh begins to rot away.
1: Well, uh, this creates a problem, and in general, it, it was kind of a rough time for noses anyway. If you remember uh, the, the story of Tycho Brahe, the uh, uh, the astronomer, uh, I think we did an episode on mm-hmm. him, or at least he's come he comes up a time. time
3: we did time an time episode, yeah.
1: Yeah, fascinating individual. Um, I, there may be some biographers that uh, that creep syphilis in there, but, but I think it's pretty established that uh, that he lost the nose in a duel. So mm-hmm. on, on one level, you can lose that nose in a duel, uh, living an adventurous lifestyle, getting yourselves into arguments with other armed gentlemen. But you can also acquire syphilis through your adventurous lifestyle. And then you see the saddle nose, the eventual rotting away of the nose. So one thing you can do is you can buy a fake nose to wear over your um, destroyed nose. And this is. This is as simple as it sounds. If you've ever seen a digital underground video and you've seen Humpty Hump with the, the big fake nose on his, uh, on his <laughs> face, who incidentally, according to the backstory, lost it uh, in a frying accident, I believe. So, sure. so uh, no dueling or syphilis involved with Humpty. But, uh, but it's basically the same scenario. A fake nose that is strapped onto the body or held with wires over, uh, the, over the, uh, the, the, the vacant area.
3: Yeah, in fact, uh, and this is according to Lindsay Fitzharris, who is a medical historian and writes on the Chirurgeon Apprentice, which is a great website documenting medical surgeries. Uh, she writes that this deformity was so common amongst those suffering from the pox, as it was sometimes called, that no nose clubs sprung up in London on February 18th 1874 the star reported miss sanborn tells us that an eccentric gentleman having taken taken a fancy to see a large party of noseless persons invited everyone thus afflicted whom he met in the streets to dine on a certain day at a tavern where he formed them into a brotherhood and on this site uh, again that Lindsay Fitzharris has put together there is a great example of one of these sort of uh, Noses, that's attached to a pair of glasses, that's attached to a sort of almost looks like a headgear, like early headgear, yeah, braces, and it's one that uh, that that a female patient wore.
1: Yeah, and you can imagine that worn with a wig, and it makes makes perfect sense. And you know, the no nose club also makes a lot of sense because if you're you're, you're dealing with this illness, you're having to cover yourself up and wear this 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 fake nose uh, over your. Your, your face. I mean, there's going to come a time when you want to be able to just take that off and be yourself no matter what has happened to yourself in this illness. You want to be able to just say, hey, here we are. We may not have noses anymore because of this illness, but hey, we're people and we want to look at each other like we're people and, and not worry about, oh, what's – and all these other people that don't have syphilis or don't realize they have syphilis or in other stages of the illness are looking at me and judging me for, for what I am and making judgments about my moral character based on what has happened.
3: Well, and Fitz Harris has that blog post, Syphilis, a Love Story, which essentially talks about this. And I believe it is Miss Sanborn who eventually takes the fake nose off at her husband's request because he accepts her as she is.
1: You know, it's interesting. I was listening to that uh, BBC program, the cultural um, history of syphilis, which I'll, I'll link to on the um, the landing page for this podcast episode. But they they go into uh, some of the cases uh, of individuals, uh, particularly in the uh, the 17th century, um, who end up, if not finding pride in their syphilitic appearance, they at least. You know, come to own it. Uh, you see individuals like Sir William uh, Davenant, sixteen oh six through sixteen sixty eight, as a poet, uh, playwright, and he was famously not shy about being painted uh, or depicted in artwork without a false nose. So you see a very sunken saddle nose. You know, almost vacant. Uh, you know, part of his facial features, and he was you know pretty upfront about it. Um, another instance, you have um, artist Gerard de Lairesse. 1641 through 1711. Who is actually a prominent painter, uh, and uh, and he was born with congenital syphilis. Um, and he he was there's actually a painting of him by Rembrandt, uh, which uh, I'll put on the blog uh, uh, for everyone to see because it's it's a it's a Rembrandt piece, so it's it's splendid to behold. But here's an individual who you know he's sitting for a portrait. He's 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 open and uh, and free about who he is. You know, he's not trying to hide it at this point. Uh, and you see a number of individuals, uh, say um, uh, John Wilmot, uh, the second Earl of Rochester, who was uh, portrayed uh, by Johnny Depp in the movie Libertine. Um, you see individuals like this who basically say, yeah, I have syphilis. I've, I've had a wild life and the, the wages of having that wild life are syphilis. So it's, it's almost like a, a, badge, a, of a honor. badge of honor. Yeah, it's yeah. like when you hear – I've heard people say uh, – point at rock stars, aging rock stars uh-huh. and you know say, ooh, they look rough. But they partied hard to get there, you know. To say that you know what has happened to them is 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 like a badge of honor because it says they have enjoyed their younger life, and that is why uh, their their older form is so decrepit. And then that's what you're seeing in some of these individuals. Now, granted, these are individuals that were living at the in the upper echelon of society, so they had a little more room to. Um, you know to grab onto that pride they weren 't dying of syphilis uh, you know in in the slums, uh, and likewise some of these individuals too also uh, had taken to various um, ideas about how syphilis could be treated, so they thought that perhaps their tr- their syphilis was being treated and managed by regular mercury treatments in one of those mercury steam baths, which, mm-hmm. as we mentioned in the previous episode, may uh, w- you know was, was likely making uh, their symptoms worse in some cases.
3: So they thought that a they were above sort of some of the social goal, uh, rules in place because of their position in society, and b that they might have been vanquishing it so they, yeah. they were uh, not quite as concerned about how they looked perhaps
1: yeah and if you're taking if you're looking at the body from a less religious standpoint and you're looking at more from a hedonistic or even mechanical standpoint mm-hmm. you're then you're saying hey i live in a world in which syphilis exists and if i behave a certain way syphilis is what happens to my body you know um, some of these cases too you see individuals where they they're they they're almost happy when they finally catch syphilis because it means, it, if nothing else, it means they don't have to worry about catching syphilis anymore. You know they're they're yeah. they're no longer living um, in the shadow of syphilis, but within the dark of syphilis and. You can see where there might be a certain amount of empowerment there. Certainly if you have to latch onto something, you might as well latch onto that.
3: Although again, you'd have to be in a really specific social position to do yeah. that. And you'd have to be a male for certain
1: No, oh, yes, indeed.
3: Now, if you had the money, the wherewithal, and you did not wanna wear a fake nose or you weren't ready to come out to the world that you had syphilis, then you would try a kind of nasal reconstruction which in the sixteenth century was called the Indian method. And this involved cutting a nose-sized section of skin from the forehead. So, there's again another calling card or yeah. hallmark that you have the disease because your nose looks great, but you got a big patch of skin missing hey, from you forehead. Hey, but you have a really
1: big wig. that's
3: that, yeah. true. So you end that's up true. That up. You have a nice wig, uh, but they take that skin from the forehead and they would attach it to the bridge of the nose to maintain a steady. Blood supply, and then that flap was twisted into place and sewn over the damaged area, which kind of created a replacement nose. But again, it wasn't perfect. In you know, really cold weather, it would not turn the same color as the rest of your nose. So there were certain telltale signs that it it may look like an intact nose, but it is not your perhaps nose that you were born with. But it turns out that there is a better and, and perhaps more horrific way to take a stab at uh, plastic surgery or early plastic surgery.
1: Yeah, well, it, it is tempting to say it's horrific, but it, but in, in another way, it's kind of beautiful I and mean, it gets at how malleable our flesh really is. Because again, modern plastic surgery, the the plastic is referring to the plasticity of the flesh that you can craft flesh into a form.
3: Yeah, and actually, this method did and does. Uh, inform plastic surgeons about how skin grows and how you can mold it and and sculpt it. So,
1: yeah, in this we see uh, the 16th century advent of the Italian method. Now, to to picture this, um, if you don't have a, an image of it in front of you, um, and and if you're not driving a car or doing anything where you need your hands, place uh, place your your palm of your hand uh, kind of on your forehead, okay, and then allow your nose to to touch your arm. That is basically the position where uh, the surgeon would would lock your arm into place. There would be like a head vice type of scenario going on so that you could not move your arm away. You could not mm-hmm. move your, the, the, the flesh of your arm away from the flesh of your face. And then that's where you perform the, the, the skin graft. You walk a pedicle of flesh. You sort of cut it away from the forearm. Then you stitch it into place where the nose should be in place of the nose that you've lost uh, to syphilis or duels or what have you. And then that's held in place while the, the, the grafted skin grows onto the face. So for a, a brief period of time, you have effectively sewn your arm or a surgeon has effectively sewn your arm mm-hmm. to your face. And then once the graft is taken, then you cut the arm away from it. And you've, you've essentially walked a, a piece of flesh off of your arm onto your face and then use that to form a new nose.
3: Which is kind of brilliant. I mean, honestly, you ask a plastic surgeon about this and they'll be like, this is a great way to try to get the skin to graft onto other skin and then be able to shape it. Mm -hmm. Um, The only problem here is that for about two weeks, you're walking around with your your hand stuck (laughs) to your head and you can't really move your nose, right? Because that's now stuck to your arm.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing you're probably not doing a whole lot of walking around town like that, but but yeah, there's going to be a weird period there. But you know, the Italian method—it's a remarkable what it can do. Like it may be summoning images of like a really bad plastic surgery job or something. Yeah. But I've I've seen some images, uh, particularly like particularly late 1800s, early 1900s, in which you see multiple pedicles of flesh. That are essentially walked up the body mm-hmm. to the face to repair individuals who say lost their lower jaw uh, to uh, to to gunshot wound, uh, and then you're able to walk all these pedicles up to the face, and it looks kind of ghastly at first, but then you start putting them in their place, and at the end of uh, the of this series of procedures, you have a much more uh, normal looking uh, visage uh, there in place of the damaged tissue. So in 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 this scenario, we see the impact of syphilis on early rhinoplasty in uh, Europe. Uh, but we also see other ways in which uh, syphilis ends up changing the way that, that, uh, that medicine is practiced uh, through, throughout uh, the, the old world. Uh, for instance, it immediately it challenged humorism and the doctrine of contagion that was prevalent of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see syphilis as a catalyst for modern doctor-patient confidentiality. Because suddenly it becomes a a kind of a calling card for some doctors. Hey, let me treat you for your syphilis because I'll keep it on the down low. Now we just kind of take that for granted that we go into a doctor. They're not going to blab about syphilis to everyone in the neighborhood.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love –
1: This is another key fact that was brought up in uh, the book Clean by Virginia Smith uh, that I've referenced before in podcasts, and that is that uh, previously you had, you'd had you go into your you know, your local uh, barber shop and you'd have uh, the barber uh, tonsors in the front the barber surgeons in the back. You, yeah. You yeah. have your hair cut, your, mm-hmm. your face shaved, all of that. that take place in the front of the building. You'd mm-hmm. go into the back, into the yard or what have you. That's where you would receive minor surgeries. That's where you would uh, take a, a bath uh, and- and later, as, uh, as syphilis begins to spread, that's where you start getting treated for syphilis. That's where you might take your mercury bath. And so the, the prevalence of the disease and fear uh, regarding the disease, this re- leads to regulation. This, re- this leads to, of course, you know, paranoia. And so you see the two separate. So you see the separation of the barber tonsor and the barber surgeon.
3: That's right, because that red and white striped barber uh, pole used to indicate that there were surgeries done there, right? In yeah. case anybody's. Ever wondered why um, that pole is outside of a hair cuttery? All right, so that's its impact on on um, on medicine and, and medical surgeries, um, as well as cottage industries like wig makers, right? Yes, and mm-hmm. people who are are selling you know snake oils. But there are certain things that you cannot cover up here when it comes to syphilis, and one of the things uh, would be your teeth. Now you could pull out your teeth, you could put dentures in, but if you didn't want to do that, you're kind of saddled with the ravages of your teeth by syphilis.
1: Yeah, and one of the more one of the more particular things we see here with the teeth is something that pops up in cases of congenital syphilis, and that's uh, something known as uh, Hutchinson teeth. These are. Um, uh, you know, as with all things syphilis, the exact symptoms vary, but this is often typified by sharpened looking teeth or peg shaped teeth that kind of have sharpened points on the edges mm-hmm. um, uh, You can look for for images of the, this online I think i and actually, I did a blog post. Uh, that I'll link to on the landing page for this podcast episode that includes uh, the image that uh, Julia and I are both looking at now. But they do have a kind of a monstrous appearance. These are like sharpened teeth inside of a human mouth.
3: Particularly canine teeth. Yes. And so we start to look at this for a little bit, and uh, naturally you, your mind would turn to vampire teeth because that's kind of what this looks like. It looks like a sort of Nosferato version of vampire teeth.
1: Yeah, and it's led uh, some commentators to argue that the uh, that the evolution of the vampire myth in uh, in Western civilization may have connections to cases of congenital or hereditary syphilis. Uh, the children are born like this; they have this kind. They could have, uh, uh, in addition to these teeth, they may also have elongated uh, uh, fingers. They may have an uh, uh, elongated skull. There are mm-hmm. various other um, deformities that might be interpreted as monstrous by by uh, somebody. Uh, Taking in the scenario, Um, and another connection between vampires and syphilis, arguably, takes us to Bram Stoker himself, the author of the book Dracula. And another area where vampires and syphilis seem to converge uh, is in the case of the 1897 novel Dracula by Bram Stoker. Now. Bram Stoker's exact uh, cause of death, and he died in uh, 1912. It remains, you know, somewhat something of a mystery. But some biographers attribute his death to tertiary syphilis, hmm. and make the further argument that Dracula itself, as a literary work, is is kind of reflecting not only the paranoia re- uh, regarding uh, syphilis that's present in the culture, but also Stoker's own. Uh, experience with the illness itself because you you look at vampires you look at dracula Mm -hmm. and you see uh something that is at once sexual and monstrous you see this this uh this outsider that has come uh, to in this case to england and is is spreading this uh this illness of vampirism this uh this this alien pathogen to 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 uh, to to women in the uh in, in the in the area
3: uh, yes, they are puncturing the women, right? Yes. So, again, you have to use that metaphor, which always comes up, sex and vampires, right? Um, yeah. In fact, there's. you sent me this link uh, to a class that's offered. Uh, the class is The Vampire in Literature and Cinema, taught by Tomislav Lajinovich, who is a uh, professor of Slavic and comparative literature. And uh, he uses that vampire lore to explore folkloric explanations of disease epidemics. Which makes sense, right? Especially if you're you're caught up in this. You'll say it's the 16th century, it's the 17th century, and this is this you know pervasive disease, and you have all of these sort of myths surrounding it. It's possible that that people could sort of extrapolate, like maybe there are vampires, maybe this yeah. is how it's being spread.
1: Yeah, because again, four and a half centuries in which we could not cure it. Uh, so you're throwing what you can at it. You're throwing. You're throwing actual research. You're throwing snake oil. You're throwing mercury steam baths. You're throwing religion. And again, you know, because again, it just can't be uh, it can't be overstated the the connection between um, between morality and and syphilis here, at least in the way that, that people tried to understand it, or at least ended up viewing it in society. And so, yeah, you throw in a little myth in there. You throw a little magical thinking and and. And there you go. You can easily see the vampire emerge. Nothing uh, concrete there, but some food for thought.
3: Yeah, which may be why a vampire in the form of Count Spirochite shows up in a Navy video in the 70s talking about STDs, right?
1: Yes, and uh, you can watch this. I linked to the the, uh, the video um on a blog post I did for stuff to blow your mind, it's actually a fabulous documentary. It's kind of the style of of uh, Schoolhouse Rocks, yeah. And uh, and but and, it has a
3: Scooby Doo element to it as well.
1: Yeah, it's it's very silly. Look, even when they get into some of the rougher stuff, such as uh, congenital syphilis, or or actually showing uh, uh, illustrations of genitals. It's like the setup is very cartoon. It's uh, yeah. Death himself is having an award ceremony, handing out the coveted Fourth Horseman award for a disease that's uh, that's done the best work in causing misery and death around the world, and who should win it but Count Spirokeet, who represents syphilis. Uh, uh, the the embodiment of gonorrhea takes some issue with it. Some of the other illnesses are like, <laughs> right. what's so great right. about spirochete? What's he doing? There's a cure for it, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And so death and spirochete, mainly death, goes on to explain to us why, how syphilis works uh, and why it is a problem and why enlisted Navy men, uh, why sailors should be on guard and should uh, go seek treatment for uh, anytime they have any kind of a flare-up.
3: Which kind of gets into this whole rich tradition of the military trying to bring a level of awareness of STDs to uh, to everyone. In fact, if you go back to World War One and World War Two, uh, you will see all sorts of pamphlets and posters warning. Military members to be very careful to watch out for SIF, watch out for gonorrhea, and it even reminded me of our quarantine episode in which we talked about the U.S. military quarantining prostitutes in an attempt to try to separate what they thought as disease-carrying prostitutes uh, with STDs from military members.
1: Yeah, so you have uh, you you have these campaigns that are basically in essence saying hey sailors when you go into the next port town please stay away from the prostitutes because you could catch syphilis and it's bad news and you have to Bear in mind too that even after the advent of penicillin, you'll have situations, particularly in wartime, where there's there's not an unlimited amount of penicillin to throw at uh, at your your navy men's venereal diseases. There, you have you have that a lot of that penicillin is earmarked for the battlefield for for use in uh, in, you know, in helping with soldiers who've been injured in in, in combat. You you don't want to spend it all just on a bunch of, uh, of horny sailors who can't control themselves when they go into a foreign port of call. So they're throwing education. at the problem as well, but they're speaking to a male audience, and and so the the messaging tends to take on a very sexist feel.
3: Yeah, in fact, uh, one of the posters which I'm looking at right now is a really good example. It's this. Um It's a photograph of a girl that looks, you know, kind of innocent and pure and, you know, very... Very
1: Norman Rockwell. Like, this is a Norman Rockwell gal I'm looking at.
3: Very Norman Rockwell. In fact, she has this sort of beatific smile on as if, you know, she's doing godly work. And then there are, you know, some servicemen who are looking at her at a distance. And across this poster, it says, she may look clean, but... And the butt is in all red and all caps. And it says pickups, good time girls, prostitutes spread syphilis and gonorrhea. You can't beat the axis if you get VD. And I, I, what I think is so interesting about this is that there are many other posters that have more, uh, I don't know, what would you say, tawdry looking women that they are basically saying they're prostitutes. But then you have this other sort of, like I said, beatific, smiled, innocent looking girl. And the point is, as you say, is that they're speaking to men and um, they're really underscoring this idea that STDs, venereal diseases all begin with women and that they are the font of evil.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's this, there's this darkness in the woman. It's almost like the like the the feminine form as monster is the message here. And mm-hmm. and you see again, you do see some more fantastic, horrific uh, visions of this. Uh, there's one where uh, the woman is like moving a, a handheld mask away from her face, and behind it, there's a death skull. Yes, um, yes. there's Salvador <laughs> Dali's uh, illustration that he did for a, uh, an anti syphilis poster, in which you see the the two uh, buxom women that melting. are melting yeah i guess 're kind of melting kind of, but they, they look like a death skull you know it 's one of those one of his classic uh, style images where you see the death 's head uh, in the form of the women i 'll be sure to throw that on stuff as well so everyone can see it
3: and yeah weren 't you telling me about the sixteenth century hypothesis of the woman as really the germinator of syphilis
1: yeah yeah, there was this uh, notion that syphilis emerged because you had you had women, you had prostitutes who were having sex with multiple men, uh, and then those semen's, those different seeds, would be inside her, and they would mingle together and corrupt into the form of syphilis. So, it, and it, you know, they had no, there was no proof to back up this ridiculous theory, but it did place the blame firmly on on women, and very moralistically as well. These women are are sinning, and therefore, you have. Uh, Sickness arising from them. They are the source of, of the ailment itself.
3: Yeah, and uh, not, not to get too crazy here, but it just kind of brings me back to this idea of witches, and we talked about witches, mm-hmm. and we talked about you know the power of women and sexuality. And again, here we are ascribing this sort of power, this death to women in the form of syphilis. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know that that's what all the poster artists intended, but it certainly uh, captured the spirit of the times.
1: Yeah. And, and again, they were talking to a predominantly male audience. Uh, as we mentioned before, even in, uh, in you know, over the, the, the centuries that syphilis was really ravaging Europe, you saw the highest percentages of infection uh, in the uh, in the in the soldiers or certainly a higher percentage than in the, the rest of the, the population. So soldiers and prostitutes were a key area of transference, indeed. All right, so there you have it. Uh, again, there's just there's not enough time, and even in a series of podcasts, to really get into all the ways that syphilis informed uh, uh, Western culture during its uh, uh, four and a half centuries of unchecked uh, life. But uh, but hopefully we hit some of the high points. We hit some of the the ideas that were at play here about uh, about uh, us versus the other, about men and women, about uh, morality, about the the cosmetics of dealing with syphilis. And if nothing else, it should serve as an interesting starting point uh, for your own uh, exploration of the topic.
3: And also touching on the origin of it as well, and and knowing that we don't have the end-all, be-all theory in place yet, but we do have an idea of where it came from. All right, um, you guys can find us at a multitude of places.
1: Yeah, that's right. Go to stufftoblowyourmind.com That is the mothership. You will find all the blog posts, the podcasts, the videos, etc. Including a number of different items related to this uh, syphilis series that we've put out.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com